VegCast. Hey, there is an October VegCast after all. VegCast. It's the 17th VegCast, by the way. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. And yes, we are back on the air with you with the 17th VegCast. Uh, coming in just under the wire for October, as seems to be... Our want here. This will be our long-awaited second in uh, the two-part series on farm sanctuaries. Uh, you'll recall in September we visited Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary, and uh, this time around we're going to be talking with uh, local Philly guy David Cantor of Responsible Policies for Animals about farm sanctuaries and the way that uh, institutions of higher learning might change their agriculture programs to make that uh, make them more viable, make farm sanctuaries more viable. And of course, we'll be talking with him about the other initiatives and goals of responsible policies for animals. We have, uh, of course, as always, a science fact for you, and uh, we'll also have some music. From a band you might have heard of if you're a regular VegCast listener, Green Beans. All that's coming up right here on VegCast. Okay, we're going to be getting to our interview with David Kander in just a moment. But as usual, just ripping a couple of items from the day's headlines or the past month and a half's headlines. Uh, There have been plenty of uh, big stories. I just wanted to highlight a couple Uh, One is a local story here in Philadelphia. The Philadelphia Zoo announced that they were getting rid of their elephant exhibit, at least for now, uh, after local activists have been uh, pressuring them and picketing them for uh, over a period of years. Uh, One, the key elephant in question was sent to a sanctuary. Uh, Three others were sent to the Maryland Zoo, which is not uh, the best of all possible uh, solutions as far as animal uh, activists would like to see, but uh, it is a pretty big story, in my opinion, in that I am uh, one of those people who sees this as p- a potential tipping point as the 11th uh, city zoo in America to make this decision to close their elephant exhibit. And the more zoos do this, the uh, greater the pressure is on the remaining zoos to come up with a rationale for why they should put these uh, large noble creatures in cages so that people can stare at them. And uh, the fact that they're doing so uh, is going to come over under more scrutiny. So uh, we can hope that uh, there will be some movement uh, somewhere else and see we'll be uh, tracking that for you as well. Um, the other big story, of course, that is vegetarian-related is the killer spinach that uh, captured the fancy of a nation uh, in uh, late September, early October, and so forth. Uh, the fact that there was E. coli bacteria that had gotten onto uh, spinach grown in a particular location, uh, which <laughs> a particular location happened to be next to a dairy farm, uh, which, of course, uh, was finally found to be the uh, source of the E. coli. Uh, I'm using the word source in the dictionary definition, not the way that 
many journalists happen to use it, calling spinach the source of the E. coli. The spinach is the carrier of this uh, foodborne bacteria. Um, but uh, I just thought it was worth mentioning because it was uh, kind of bitterly ironic to see how this uh, concept that uh, spinach was dangerous to eat because it could kill you because it has this E. coli uh, was how that was put out through the mainstream media. There you know, cartoons, uh, late-night comics, and, of course, front-page headlines day after day about this uh, outbreak in which three people died and uh, many others were made ill. Um, the reason that this is bitterly ironic, of course, is that for anybody who's been following the uh, process of uh, recalling uh, animal products over the years and has seen the way that those are hand handled and the kind of news coverage they get, uh, there's a somewhat of a disparity, we might say. Just to start with, I think uh, readers of my blog know that I obsess over the fact that meat recalls, uh, more than half of all meat recalls and probably a larger percentage of the biggest meat recalls are announced on a Friday when it is well known that this is when you put stories out that you don't want anybody to hear about, which is understandable given that it's embarrassing to the USDA and to the meat companies, but the concept of a recall is that you want to get the largest number of people to hear about it in order to save their lives. Uh, and yet, coincidentally, these uh, always seem to be happening on a Friday, so there doesn't tend to be a lot of front-page coverage about them, even when uh, many, many people uh, get sick from them uh, or die. When you have a lot of deaths, then it, it finally uh, seems to get front-page treatment, as uh, you did back in 2002 uh, with the big listeria outbreak. But uh, short of that, there are meat recalls and E. coli contamination happening all the time. And I was going to say, I've never seen a story uh, where the headline has informed us that uh, only a small portion of the recalled meat has been recovered. Yet I'm sure that that happens all the time because people rarely hear about these things. Uh, and yet I did see such a headline uh, when, after the spinach frenzy was in its full flower, there was also a concern over green lettuce, and uh, much of that was recalled as well, and there was even a story uh, saying how, you know, there was a large amount of lettuce still out there, still not recovered, and of course, uh, then I don't think this story got as much play, a recalled lettuce free of dangerous E. coli tests show. Uh, but this can be uh, contrasted also uh, with the way that the uh, spinach process, the spinach, wait, this can be contrasted also with the way that the spinach farm was immediately identified uh, as the source, so to speak, of this outbreak, uh, identified by name and so forth. And yet if we take just a, a look at what might be a somewhat uh, similar situation with an outbreak in Minnesota over the summer. Uh, the headline for this USDA report fails to name meat processor thought to be source of Longville E. coli outbreak. And it goes on to uh, talk about this outbreak, which sickened many people, killed uh, somebody. And uh, yet the USDA refuses to say, even though they've uh, apparently nailed it down, they will not name the uh, meat company because that would be bad for business. 
Uh, so I just put this forward to you that uh, whether it's conscious or not, whether it's a conspiracy or just kind of the way that business is done, it seems that uh, meat products and vegetable products are not exactly handled the same way by our USDA, which is supposed to oversee both of them, or by the journalistic establishment. Uh, and it's something that we might look forward to uh, seeing an amelioration of that in the future. Uh, I don't know where that's going to come from, but we're, we're going to look forward to it anyway. In the meantime, let's go now to our interview with David Cantor of Responsible Policies for Animals. Okay, well, we're here now with David Cantor of Responsible Policies for Animals. David, thanks for being with us here on VegCast. Thanks for having me, Vance. And uh, David is a longtime veteran of the animal rights movement, having worked with uh, many different national organizations. And uh, right now, you're with Responsible Policies for Animals. Can you explain basically in a nutshell what the uh, mission is of the RPA? Uh, sure. Responsible Policies for Animals is something I started at the very end of 2002, launched the main campaign that we're going to talk about in 2003, and I started it because I thought it was important that there be a an animal rights group, no matter how big or small, that was that was strictly promoting animal rights according to the original concept that that were working to establish the basic legal rights of non-human animals on which secondary rights can be built and which can be enforced and meaningful, as opposed to trying to do a huge number of different things to try to save animals or shut down industries through consumer choices and things like that. I thought that was important. Okay, when you say the original concept of animal rights, are is there a particular point or document or anything that you can harken back to, or is it basically just a logical process of saying, well, here is what the baseline would be for anything that we could seriously call animal rights? Uh, different people would give different starting points, but the, the basic animal rights theory goes back some decades, and, and, and the term rights was originally used to establish that it's not the same as animal welfare, so that, it, uh, that animals would have rights similar to human rights, but according to their species, not identical to human rights, as is, is sometimes mistakenly believed, but... Uh, but the, that the basic uh, assumption of rights is that an individual uh, exists for the individual's own sake, not for the sake of others, and is not the property of others, and okay. such as that. Well, let's uh, just move beyond the theory into some of the actual policies that you're uh, trying to promote. And now, uh, the big one that you've got a lot of attention for is calling for an end to animal agriculture programs in institutions of higher learning. Is that right? Yes. Uh, they're called animal science programs. And uh, I started to notice these programs a very long time ago, around 1991, uh, when I got a call from a student at the University of Florida Gainesville, one of the large land-grant universities, which are where the colleges of agriculture are located, and that's where animal science is taught, the colleges of agriculture, um, and she was a pre-vet student who found herself in an anatomy course where students were required to slaughter four different species of animals in an on-campus slaughter facility, and anatomy was taught as cuts of meat. 
and she was already into the semester before she realized she was supposed to slaughter animals and she didn't want to take part in slaughtering animals. That brought to my attention, if this is going on at one land-grant university, it's probably going on at quite a lot of them, if not all of them. And uh, there are 105 land-grant universities, some of them in territories, not even in the 50 states. And um, as it turns out, almost all of them have slaughter facilities and uh, almost all of them uh, teach animal science. And it's essentially training for the flesh, milk, and egg industries. Uh, uh, and, and there are a lot of reasons why it creates huge problems and violates animals' rights. And so you've, you've basically sent out letters. You've, uh, you've got a campaign going. Uh, you've called on universities to shut down these programs. Has there been, has there been any movement or any uh, indication that this is having an effect other than, you know, you hopefully it's making them think, but has there been any real-world practical effect as of yet? Um, well, what we did was we, we've sent uh, uh, to the 50 main land-grant universities, one in each state, the original one in each state, we've sent four mailings totaling um, about 200 letters, 150 fact sheets, and 50 books. We sent each uh, president of the university a copy of The Pig Who Sang to the Moon, The Emotional World of Farm Animals by Jeffrey Musayeth Mason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, that was because, that was in the third mailing, and that was because we realized from responses that we got to the first two that the administrators really didn't know very much about animal science or farm animals, and we thought they needed a little bit more concrete understanding about who exactly the animals are so they could see a bit more what we're talking about. But to to go more directly to your question, we don't know of specifically any university planning to phase out animal science, but the uh, the way we think of a campaign in trying to find a way to, to really to, to teach animal rights to the country, really, and, and to the human world uh, is a very long-term process. So we see a campaign like this as being very long-term and being used primarily as an educational platform. Mm-hmm. So by, by showing that we're trying to teach teachers and college administrators at some of the, uh, the biggest universities that they're teaching the wrong things. Uh, and in doing that, they're causing a lot of harm to animals, the environment, and human health. Uh, and, and that we believe animal rights is the way to improve the treatment of animals and ecosystem protection and human health and nutrition. Um, we're, uh, we're campaigning in a way where we don't expect these huge institutions to change on our say-so. And we're a fairly small organization. We have some support from some larger ones, but, but we don't expect very rapid change. But there was a lot of attention to the campaign uh, in, in the months after it was launched, especially in the meat industry, uh, in, the, in the network of land-grant universities. And uh, we had an article in PR Week, uh, and some other publications, but it's on, it's on, it got, it got around to all kinds of advocates for the industries, mm-hmm. uh, and we still keep finding that, that there's, uh, concern about the campaign. It was mentioned at a big meat industry conference, uh, not terribly long ago in Chicago. So, 
we we don't think they they want to make these changes, but we think uh, over time, as we keep building pressure on them, they will see that they can't justify teaching animal science educationally. Uh, it, it violates the public trust and and their role as. Uh, they're supposed to provide public service by teaching agriculture, not teach things that that serve special interests uh, entirely. Okay. Well, uh, RPA has a uh, what we might call an abolitionist uh, perspective. You are working for uh, the total abolition of these institutions that are exploitative of animals' rights. Um, but one of the things that we had talked about when I saw you at Summerfest was the notion of a a step in between where the uh, the universities might continue these programs focusing on the institution of farm sanctuaries and actually training people to uh, to look after animals that have been rescued from this industry and uh, whether that might be something that they could do at, without like closing the programs and firing people. Um, and I just wondered, is that something that you're looking at? Is that anything that you've shared with uh, people? Have you gotten a press release, or is that uh, just a pipe dream? Well, the idea of transforming uh, animal science programs, or some of them, into sanctuaries instead of training for the industries uh, is partly because it would take the commercial aspect of animal science out of the program Mm -hmm. and uh, there's some big veterinary schools associated with the colleges of agriculture at the land grant universities, and uh, as long as these animals exist, that uh, the students could still learn and uh, professors could still train in in good animal care at the universities. But it wouldn't be husbandry per se. It wouldn't be uh, trying to make the industries more. Uh, economical and efficient, which the animal science programs have done to date, uh, creating the factory farming system, etc. It would be uh, care for the animals' own sake. And uh, just like today's sanctuaries uh, for farm animals, uh, the, the serious ones, the ones that promote animal rights um, to the extent that they do, uh, they would not purchase or sell animals. That mm-hmm. would be crucial. So industries couldn't see them as venues for selling animals mm-hmm. and and eggs to hatch and things like that uh, that they do now. Okay. Well, so um, you have worked with uh, with Farm Sanctuary in the past. Is there uh, something that you would do to reform the overall uh, Farm Sanctuary movement? Uh, it sounds like there are you still have uh, some reservations about some of the ways that some sanctuaries are being run. Is there some kind of blanket uh, notion or uh, method of operation that that you would like to see adopted at sanctuaries? Uh, the good sanctuaries like uh, Farm Sanctuary and its network of uh, sanctuaries that they personally examine and uh, and check their policies that they don't purchase or sell animals especially uh, I don't have any problem with those I, 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 uh, I worry sometimes that some people might have, might see ways of making money by calling something a sanctuary getting donations uh, there I've had calls about places that call themselves sanctuaries but are actually horrible places for animals and uh, where 
they can be dumping grounds for uh, SPCAs in impoverished communities and uh, and not well maintained and visitors go and they're appalled but sanctuary is based on true sanctuary standards and 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 not not treating animals uh, in a degrading way any more than you would treat humans in a degree in a degrading way at a good shelter for humans right. uh, i have no problem with those at all uh, they're they animal they're essentially part of the animal welfare system i think um, and you, you can't really fault anyone for giving a good life to an animal all right well let me just follow that up we're uh, running out of time here but uh, to kind of sum it up, uh, responsible policies for animals, uh, what, what is the organization looking toward doing to, you know, uh, get this notion of rights promoted to the point that it actually, uh, makes a difference? I mean, in a, in a sense, you can say people going vegan are indirectly promoting animal rights, but what then I mean, you, you're wanting something more tangible, more immediate. What what is going to uh, to happen to make that to make that possible? A big part of it is um, to educate people about exactly what rights are and exactly what animal rights means through by recommending the the literature, giving out our literature that explains it very succinctly, and. By, by in our 10,000 Years is Enough campaign, the campaign to end the teaching of animal science, a big part of what we explain, and, and we've broadened the campaign to the, agro, the agriculture committees of the state legislatures, the, the U.S. House and Senate agriculture committees. We're contacting trustees of the universities. We will be contacting uh, legislative committees such as Commerce, uh, and education as well uh, by getting these large institutions and the government agencies that affect them to understand what animal rights is, partly by explaining that that a big part of the ethical problem with teaching animal science is that they explicitly teach that animals cannot have legal rights and they teach that the animal rights movement is wrong to try to end these industries. They even teach uh, that they even teach for the fur industry and other industries that that uh, that virtually everybody understands there's no need for, even if they don't understand that humans are natural herbivores. So a large part of it is to um, to explain rights why the animals have to have them as sentient beings and and that they can't have humane treatment without rights, just as uh, in a society like, say, in Iraq under Saddam Hussein, humans could not have meaningful protection because they didn't have rights and so on. So it's it's an educational process that I think uh, in the past a lot of the animal advocacy world has tried to skip over by by... Uh, by trying to maybe get too popular too fast, maybe, uh, uh, in other words, it's kind of like um, if animal rights is at the top of a steep hill, we have a lot of people who don't necessarily want to climb a long steep hill, and they'd rather walk someplace easier to get to, on, uh, on level ground perhaps, but rights are at the top of the hill. They're not anywhere on that level ground. So they're promoting other good things, 
I don't think they're promoting bad things. I think it's good to promote a vegan diet uh, and and to help animals where possible under the animal welfare system. But the animal welfare system is part of the animal exploitation system. It's the part that uh, is essentially public relations for the idea that, that exploited animals can be treated humanely. I believe they cannot be in any meaningful extent. And so I, I think we have to do this very hard thing of of educating people about rights and animal rights. Okay, well, let me just, uh, before we go, say responsible policies for animals. What is, like, the next thing on your radar that you're going to do that is going to advance this, that's going to be taking further steps up that hill? One immediate thing is we're, we're very soon going to be running an ad in the Chronicle of Higher Education which will uh, link people to uh, professors, uh, especially professors and administrators get this very large circulation weekly newspaper, the Chronicle of Higher Education. And right. we will uh, uh, give a small ad with a URL that will take people to a detailed explanation online of how they, uh, uh, who who might be experts in education, ecology, animals, nutrition, health, uh, uh, and uh, areas related to those, how they can help eliminate animal science and why they should want to help. Mm -hmm. So it will get the campaign better known within the academy, um, and some of the people who see it will be with the land-grant universities and some will not, Um, but they will see that a lot of land-grant university people understand, for example, that meat is not a sustainable industry ecologically, that humans do best on an all-plant diet. There, there are professors in some of the very same universities that, are, that have been teaching these things, but the, those teachings and the, their research findings don't play out in the actual university process. So, so it's not that hasn't been uh, motivating them to eliminate uh, their service to the flesh, milk, and egg industries. Uh, that's one of several things we're doing in the very near future. Okay, great. All right, uh, well, that's all the time we have for this segment. But uh, David Cantor, uh, Responsible Policies for Animals, thank you again for taking the time to talk with us on VegCast. Hey, thank you. You do a great service. Thank you. Okay, and David Cantor is also a musician, and we will be hearing a track from him on a future VegCast. But for right now, an old favorite of mine, of a band called Green Beings, with a song about the modern romance and the requirements thereof that men of today need to learn about. It's called Peas in a Pod, Green Beings. Sam and Julie met at a bookstore cafe It's one of those things that was destined to happen They hit it off just about right away Drinking too much coffee, talking and laughing They had so much in common, it's beyond belief No way you are kidding me, oh my god Sam said it's like we're from the same cut of beef And Julie said I'd prefer to say we're like two peas in a pod.
thing you know It's a big food fight about what's good for you And what people should eat And you must be wrong, cause I know I'm right Yes, we're not as alike as we've been thinking We walk by the light of two different torches We're like bacon and Canadian bacon And Julie said, you mean apples and oranges Filleted, thrown on the grill and then tossed back into the downstairs freezer. I can't work it out what the women want. They ask for well done, then they can't stand the heat. Some passerby said, I'll be totally blunt. It's your big use of speech, man. You're too full of meat. Every five seconds, man, you're like making metaphorical reference to cooking and eating animals. And you know, that's a turnoff for the modern intelligent woman who chooses not to eat meat for a variety of humanitarian, environmental, and health reasons. But check it out, your love life will blossom if you just change the way you talk. Sam said that's baloney, the stranger said, look, you can sit here soon, you can give it a try. Just practice one day with my veggie phrase book, this is low hanging fruit, it's as easy as pie. Amazing, Julie and Sam are a perfect love match. Sam learned a whole new style of phrasing. Now he's picking all his metaphors from the vegetable patch. Tomatoes are best when they're ripe on the vine. Let's start fresh and turn over the sun. The fruit of love is sweeter than wine. And you and me, well, we're just like two peas in a pod. Science fact for this episode is a pretty simple and straightforward one. Uh, the headline is, Study, Vegetable Diet Keeps the Mind Sharp. 
is an Associated Press story uh, which begins, New research on vegetables and aging gives mothers, and I will add vegetarians, another reason to say, I told you so, finding that eating vegetables may slow mental decline by about 40%. On measures of mental sharpness, Older people who ate more than two servings of vegetables daily appeared about five years younger at the end of the six-year study than those who ate few or no vegetables. This uh, involved uh, about 2,000 Chicago-area men and women. And uh, they also point out green leafy vegetables, including spinach, kale, and collards, appeared to be the most beneficial. Well, we all know you got to stay away from that spinach. It'll kill you. But uh, on the other hand, kale... Uh, I guess using the same uh, hyperbolic logic, uh, kale is, of course, nature's perfect food. And it's not really surprising that uh, this would have this effect. Again, not necessarily because of the vitamin E, which they go on to talk about alone, but uh, because we also know that there are uh, problems associated with the overconsumption of animal protein and dementia. Uh, which may or may not actually be related to the whole mad cow TSC problem. But at least we can say eat your vegetables and keep the mind sharp. And if uh, vegetarians aren't already uh, sharper-minded and quicker-witted, well, just wait till uh, the years go by and we rack up all of these uh, veggies and then we'll see what the smart food is on Science Fact. Well, that's about it for this edition of VegCast. Thanks for downloading VegCast. Thanks for listening. And uh, we will see you in November. Can't even promise if I'm going to be able to get two podcasts done for November, but we'll definitely have one before Thanksgiving. How's that for a deal? And before we go, I wanted to throw in another quasi-science fact that uh, was just in today's paper uh, after I already uh, did the intro about the elephants in the zoo. Pursuant to that, uh, there's a story, Zoo says elephants mirror human awareness, uh, which is kind of interesting that the zoo is actually making this statement. But the test results uh, that they did at the Bronx Zoo, researchers did Uh, suggests that uh, elephants are self-aware. An Asian elephant uh, showed researchers that pachyderms can recognize themselves in a mirror, a complex behavior observed in only a few other species. Uh, They also note the ability to distinguish oneself from others had been shown previously only in humans, chimpanzees, and to a limited extent dolphins, although it doesn't say how many different kinds of animals they have tested for self-awareness and how they can tell when an animal isn't self-aware. But it continues the self-recognition may underlie the social complexity seen in elephants and could be linked to the empathy and altruism the big-brained animals have been known to display, said researcher Diana Rice of the Wildlife Conservation Society, which manages the Bronx Zoo. And that, I guess, uh, explains why the zoo is putting this news out thought that was interesting, uh, but that's going to be pretty much enough for this VegCast. And so again, see you in November, and until then, get out there and live like you mean it.